This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to the No Ceilings NBA podcast and welcome to the Deep Dives episode of the No Ceilings NBA podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar Johnson, and today I am back with a special guest who it's been a while since he has been on the program, Nathan Grubel. Nathan, how are you doing this fine afternoon? I'm doing well. It has been a while, Nick. I'm, I'm not writing about the rookies anymore, so I haven't, uh, haven't gotten a spot on Deep Dives, but nevertheless, I'm happy to be back to talk about one of my favorite prospects in this entire draft class. Yeah, so we are going to talk about your most recent article over at NoSinglesNBA.com on Bilal Koulibaly. And it is really funny for me because Bilal Koulibaly has been strange for me to sort of evaluate all year. He falls a lot, in my mind, into a Jalen Williams bucket, which I think makes me wonder why I don't have him higher on my board in that other members of No Ceilings were much earlier on the train than I was, and then they turned out to be right, and my reluctance turned out to be completely wrong. And I feel like Bilal Koulibaly is trending in the same direction, but you already mentioned it up top that he's one of your favorite prospects in this class. So Nathan, why don't we go from there? Why did you choose to write about Bilal Koulibaly for this piece? So Nick, I would I would start by saying you're not the only one who's hesitant on how high should you have Bilal Koulibaly on a board? How high should you take him in the 25th NBA draft? That hesitancy is shared amongst a lot of our peers in the NBA draft space. And I think it's because you look at a prospect like him, he's incredibly young. And because he's incredibly young, he hasn't gotten a big chance to prove a ton on a much larger stage. Or when I say that, I should say a more comparable stage to what we would deem college basketball, right? Like that's that's where everyone is most comfortable evaluating prospects in college because that's how it's been done for years and years and years and years when we have to veer outside of these lanes, when we have to watch some of the international tape, when we have to go into some of the youth leagues overseas, when we have to watch Overtime Elite and G League Ignite. Our, we, we question our process as scouts, and I think that's what leads to a lot of hesitations behind raising someone like a Bilal Koulibaly up the board because we could think, a lot of his production of late is a flash in the pan, right? He's getting minutes in the postseason, but how much of what he's been doing in the postseason is going to translate on an NBA floor from day one? I would say that maybe not everything we'll, we'll see in a rookie season from him in terms of some of the experimental things he's been doing now and some of what we'll get into what he's been trying in the youth league. But what does stand out to me, Nick, is a six foot six, actually reported six foot seven wing with a seven foot two wingspan, who is one of the better athletes at that position in this entire draft class, who is an up and down transition terror. He defends really well across multiple positions. I would say his finishing package is some of the best that we have from his position in this class. I've talked about his footwork numerous times across multiple podcasts. So you put all of these skills together and then you look at some of the negatives and how they've sort of improved from where he was even just one year ago. 
and you just take a look at this prospect who's been rapidly developing over the course of a year, and you get to the fact that he's 18 years old. If this is what he did in one year as far as improvement, how much better can he be two to three years from now? And that's the most important thing that we need to come back to in the NBA draft is when you're drafting in the lottery, you're trying to star hunt for as long as possible, and you're trying to draft for what this player can be two to three years from now, not just who they are today. And I think when you marry all of those elements together, which will break apart piece by piece, you get to why I've been fascinated with Bilal for a number of months, why I moved him into the lottery a number of months ago. And now it seems like that's general consensus to the point where we just saw Jonathan Gavoni announce that they were recording this podcast. He's actually got an agreement room right now. For, for the 2020 NBA draft. So a lot's happened in a short amount of time for him in terms of the hype. But the whole point of my piece was to show this hype's actually been warranted if you go back and you look at the film in terms of how much he's been able to develop. Wow, a footwork mentioned three minutes into the podcast. It's almost like Metcalf is co-hosting again. <laughs> he he should he should appreciate that. Not just footwork, but also defense. That's this yeah, guy's right up Metcalf's alley. <laughs> Perfect. So I do want to go back to some of what you were mentioning and sort of start off with the first section of the piece here with the what you called the foundation. So, you know, his season last year in the Pro B League in France. And this was the kind of thing that was very odd for me to try and watch that tape because there's sort of this is not going to make any sense until I explain it. It probably won't make sense after I explain it, but whatever. There's sort of a combination of like the grainy old Giannis tape from like his second division <laughs> Greek play. And also some of the overtime elite stuff where it's like, on the one hand, if you're that out, that much of an outlier of an athlete against, you know, any sort of level of pro competition, you know, that's a pretty strong statement in your favor. But the flip side is, you know, especially with, you know, him spending a decent chunk of this year as well in the, in the B league effectively, right. There's a decent chunk of his tape that's against players that are just not in his league athletically. Right. And there's a degree of, okay, how much is he just dominating because he's got so much better physical tools than everybody else in this league. And how much of it is no, actually when you are that physically dominant, you're going to be that physically dominant, you know, like Amen Thompson, you know, just as a flip side example, right. He's going to be just as elite elite of an athlete among the NBA players as he is, as he was among the overtime elite players. Right. And, with Cool Bali and with that grainy old Giannis film, it's sort of the same principle of, on the one hand, how much can I take away from this? On the other hand, I can't afford to not take away at least something from the fact that he's showing what he's showing on tape, even against this lower level of competition. So I'm glad that you mentioned one of the, the subtitles that I use within my piece, which is the foundation. And I use a number of them leading up to where we are in the present day, which would be the, the playoffs with Met 92 competing for a potential championship. And when I said the foundation... I really wanted to lay out what he did last year in terms of setting a baseline expectation for where his skills were to further track the development and how much he's actually improved. Because when you go back and look at the foundation, Nick, last year on the tape in a spa, that's exactly what it was. It was the foundation. It was him essentially fitting into this team as a role player, not doing necessarily too much outside of that construct in terms of efficient production, right? When you broke apart what his points were, a lot of them came in transition. A lot of them came off of cutting to the basket. He was not nearly as refined of a spot-up player, which is still a criticism for many as we evaluate him for this current draft cycle. And then the pick-and-roll stuff, it was not polished by any means, right? So it's essentially him making one initial read at the top, right, with his screener, 
am I accepting this screen or am I rejecting the screen? And a lot of that was predicated on if I take or reject this screen and initiate this play type, do I have an open driving lane to the basket? Do I see a pathway in which I can use my first step and I'm getting downhill towards the basket? That's where I'm going to end up. If I'm going to be caught in any sort of no man's land, or if I'm going to have to initiate a dance with the roll man, right? Sort of start that little cadence that we call in the pick and roll. He was actually rejecting those opportunities and he was either passing it out to the wing or trying to craft something else within the flow of the offense. He wasn't nearly taking on as many of those pick and rolls as we've seen him even take today or, or, or when he was with Espoir when Men 92 in, in Espoir this past season, right? So when you evaluate how far Bilal's come, it's really fascinating to go back and look at, yes, he has this foundation of skills, but nothing was really mature yet, right? The jump shot was still struggling. He wasn't making nearly the same types of reads as a passer. The thing that struck me the most, Nick, was the, the what's what's the first thing you hear about with Bilal Koulibaly? When, when you're hearing about him in public circles today, what's like the first thing you hear about his game? His athleticism. His athleticism, which leads into his defensive impact, right? A lot of people are very fascinated by his defense. His defense was a a little bit of a train wreck last year at a spot. And that's what really uh, stuck out to me was that I'm evaluating this guy who is taking all the right angles today, right? Who's positioning himself well, who's navigating screens in the pick and roll, who's making the right reads, jump passing lanes, force turnovers. And yes, he did force some turnovers last year, but he wasn't taking the same approach to defense nearly as well last season as he did this past year. And we can break down some of those things and go through the whys, but it's just, it, that's exactly what it was. It was the foundation setting the scene for what he ultimately could become because it wasn't really that much last year. There's a reason why he wasn't cracking any draft boards or, you know, you heard people talking about in preseason as a guy to watch in 2023. There was a reason for that, and that's what I wanted to write about and set the scene with. So let's start with his defense, because there is actually a devil's advocate discussion that I want to have about his defense later on. But let's, you know, go into some of the sort of specifics that you brought up of, you know, what he was doing last year, where there were some moments where on ball he showed, you know, a lot of the tools that people are, you know, really happy with for his projection with this coming draft. But you know, again, as as you mentioned, you know, this is not someone that was particularly on radars last year right and he's someone who you know has clearly you know shot his way up boards this year but you know it is interesting as you say that there's definitely some defensive stuff to like in that tape but a lot of it's not all that great and I think it does lead into an argument about his defense this year that I do want to have later on but let's stick with you know his play last year for now sure I mean last year you watched the tape of him on defense and the amount of space that he was giving opposing ball handlers right the the lack of correct angles he was playing on the defensive side of the ball, his lack of overall awareness in terms of what was going on defensively, right? How much ball watching he was doing. And, and it's almost like he was caught off guard incredibly easy a number of times to where it, it led to him sort of having to make these drastic movements towards the basketball. Like if he was going to close out a shot, he was so late getting there on the closeout to where he would fling himself forward with one hand you know, zooming past the defender to try and get a hand on the ball. When in reality, from the shooter's perspective, all that all that means is that he has to take a quick pump fake and then he's able to take that space so easily because Bilal, given how he just lunged forward, he's not going to be able to recover properly, right, to, to contest another shot. So it was all of these little things that you could pick apart 
with his game that that were not measured, right? That were not within the flow within the flow of the game. That were not ultimately part of who he is today. And those downfalls that you saw, it's just incredible to be able to look back and say, yeah, he actually cleaned up a lot of it. Because from a technical standpoint, from a mechanic standpoint, his defensive intensity, his effort, his overall awareness. They just were not there. And and I think a lot of it, you, you can go back and you can look at the synergy numbers and opponents still didn't shoot a great percentage against them in that league last season, despite everything I'm, I'm critiquing about his defense. I think that was more so just competition, missing a lot of shots or not capitalizing on a lot of the opportunities that Koulibaly ultimately left them. Because if you go back and look at the tape, you're not going to have too many nice things to say about his technique, which again, it's, it, it, it's ridiculous how much he's improved from one year to the next as we keep talking about him and moving through the flow of my piece. Yeah, that's, you know, I think the key point that I hit, you think you hit the nail on the head there. This is extremely asinine to say, but I mean, the athleticism hasn't really changed all that much, right? It's not like he's, you know, gone from being, you know, having a 20 inch vertical to all of a sudden, like taking super soldier serum and, you know, being able to, you know, jump 50 feet or whatever the hell, right? It's, the thing where you know he had the tools and the question yeah. was just how well is he using them and you know that's the kind of thing that certainly has me quite encouraged about his defense going forward is that you know i say this all the time to the point where i'm sure people are sick of hearing me say it but i'm going to say it one more time anyway you know the inches or you know the centimeters that you have in your league are going to be inches in the NBA, which of course makes no sense because centimeters are smaller than inches. So let's try that again. The meters that you might have in the professional game overseas become, you know, inches in the NBA, just like the feet that you might have in college basketball become inches in the NBA. And so being off balance with your closeouts is the kind of thing where, you know, maybe you can get away with it for the most part in, you know, Espoir, but, and that's, you know, where some of the positive synergy numbers come into play. But, you know, when you're closing out against NBA guys who can, you know, easily, you know, one dribble fake, you know, sidestep, pull up three kind of deal to the point where your contest is flying into the first row of courtside seats, right? That's the kind of thing that, you know, you can afford to make more mistakes when you're not dealing with the jump in athleticism from literally any other league in the world to the NBA. Exactly. And it's not even just like the closeout stuff either, right? It's it's when he finds himself out of position on a driver and he's trying to recover and he's using his hands more so than his body or really honestly, ideally his feet to be able to recover and wall somebody off versus trying to, hey, I'm going to try and, and grab onto their arm or slow them down in any way, shape or form and let them get to the basket. That's how you can pile up fouls. That's how you're you're giving other advantages away in terms of you know how you're positioned as far as on on defense. So a lot of these things go into account. Where I I like how you frame that he he had the tools. You are correct. The only thing I would say he was missing from last year to this year that's really popped in the tape was strength. He has gotten a lot stronger and he's been able to use that to his advantage on both sides of the floor. But yeah, when when you have that solid foundation on defense as to where you're not only seeing what's in front of you, but you're constantly keeping your head on a swivel and you're more aware of what's going on to the sides of you as well as behind you. It's amazing the type of impact that you can have. And when you're able to put those things together and play up on your man in a man-to-man scheme, you don't have to sag so far back because you're trying to see more of the court and get a better understanding as to what's going on. That's really when you're able to take a massive leap as an individual defender which is and, and in pick and roll which is a lot of what we've seen this past year. 
So speaking of a massive leap, let's move on in a moment to the next section titled The Ascension, but we're going to take a quick break before that and be back right after this. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, so now that we've covered some of the 2021-2022 season for Blal Koulibaly in the foundation section, let's get into the ascension now. And so that's what you've titled his time playing in LNB Espoir this year as opposed Mm -hmm. to last year. And, you know, again, it's telling just looking at the very, very basic numbers, right? Like this is a guy who went from, as you said, being, you know, kind of a role player, which understandable as a 17-year-old playing a professional league, to being the man for that team, you know, 22 points a game, you know, running the show a lot more than he did the year before, two and a half assists, two and a half steals a game, right? This is someone who clearly, if you're just looking purely at the offensive side of the ball, got a much bigger role and, you know, responded not only by living up to that role, but actually, you know, being more efficient than he was in year one. Yeah. So I just want to read a few paragraphs from my piece that, that really illustrate, you know, what that production means in a sense and how people should interpret it, at least how I interpret it. So what I wrote specifically from the piece is healthy skepticism is completely fair in any evaluation setting, which is kind of what we touched on at the top. Not everyone is familiar with other leagues of play for prospects outside of college basketball. So it's just to criticize and critique how production in one setting can properly translate to the next level, or at least compare to the NCAA's division one over in the United States. That being said though, and this is the important part, I've generally gone by the notion that dominance should be taken as dominance. When a player is that productive in a certain setting, either that output should be taken at face value or at least taken more seriously in terms of questioning what could happen in an expanded role up at another level. And that's really where we we start to to meet at a crux in, in a lot of this piece versus where I've been at with Bilal's game versus where others are trying to come in and get to in terms of moving him up their boards because that's exactly what this year was with Espoir. It was pure dominance. He upped his scoring average by 10 points per game. He improved as a rebounder, as a passer. He The overall improvements to his defense were tremendous. Just go watch the tape. He started to become a better, not only a better shooter in terms of the mechanics, which I get that some people still have a few reservations about the mechanics even watching him today, you know, in the regular season with Men 92 in the playoffs, but mechanically evaluate the jump shot where it was last year versus where it is this year. Drastic improvements in the form as well as just his willingness to take those shots, period, right? He was taking more opportunities to play out of pick and roll because he was able to step up and not only take that space, which he generally always is able to take certain space as a driver because of how explosive he is, but in using that space properly as a mid-range player, as someone who's getting better at that cadence, that dance with a roll man, being able to make different passes, whether it's you know a pocket pass to the roll man, lobbing a pass up over, knee, uh, up over top the defender to the big man to get an easy finish at the basket or an alley-oop. These are some of the things that he was able to incorporate in his game because he was playing at a different pace because of 
how he was able to process the game more. And it's, it's just him being able to process the game at a completely different level in the same league from where he was one year to where he is next. That shows someone who is willing to put in the work, someone who understands his deficiencies and how he can capitalize during his training periods, during his offseason to make sure that those deficiencies may be not completely cured, at least start to turn in the other direction and take a 180 as he goes into another year. And that, that development, that's what we're always looking for in these prospects, right? Even when we're evaluating college guys, Nick, I'm sure you, you, you've touched on this as well. When we're able to watch a guy in college, a, a freshman, start out the season a certain way, but end it in a completely different spot than where he started it, we're usually praising those prospects and moving them up the board, you know, top 20 grades, potentially even lottery grades. Why can't we give Koulibaly that same respect, even though it was in a different league? Is, is, is that the only reason? That's that's really where a lot of my questions have lied in terms for people who haven't moved him up the board quite yet. That's funny because I'd make an identical argument about CD Sissoko and it wouldn't be wrong either. <laughs> You, it wouldn't be wrong, and that's we we can have conversations about about City Sissoko. You and I already have. We can have even more of them in a public space because he's he's sort of gone under the radar a little bit as well. Him, Leonard Miller, these guys in the G League Ignite, you know, some of the overtime elites, other prospects like Jay Z and Gortman, Jalen Martin, like they've all really flown under the radar because people just aren't as comfortable evaluating these other leagues of play versus if they would have been in college. We, we think we would have had a much better picture about how their games translate, but we, we can't, we can't also ignore the production that's looking us dead in the face. We could talk about CD Soko for another 45 minutes, hours, years, but we do have to talk about the local because he's the focus for today. So I do want to circle back to that. And it's interesting because on the one hand, I fully admit that I have not bought into the shot yet. You know, I think it can get there, but I'm still very skeptical about that. The flip side, though, is especially what he was able to do with the ball in his hands. That, I think, is the growth that yep. is really, really important for him going forward. Because especially given that by far his best offensive strength, at least in my mind, is his ability to get to the rim, finish at the rim, and you know also get himself to the free throw line. That, you know, his ability to, as you mentioned, you know, understand pick and roll cadences better, you know, be better able to sort of pick his spots of, you know, when to drive, when to reverse the ball back out, when to actually take the screen, when to reject the screen, all of that. I think just really helps him in terms of what I think he'll need to do most at the NBA level to be successful, which is get his way to the rim as often as he can. And you know, that's the kind of thing where I think in the longer term, if the jump shot does come around, then you know that could be huge for opening up his game and giving mm-hmm. him the driving lanes that he needs. But ultimately, I think what he needs more than anything else is just more ways to continue to get to the basket because he's spectacular at getting there and spectacular at finishing once he does get there. So that's, I think, where the, you know, improved pick and roll craft really comes into play and helps me sort of be more positive about his future. You know, even if I'm not all the way bought in on the shot, his ability to get to the rim and finish there is spectacular. And the more he can do to add elements to his game that help him to do that, the better he's going to be. The ways in which he can finish, right? And it's, it's not necessarily that he's an ambidextrous finisher per se, in terms of, you know, going to his left hand a lot versus he is really right hand dominant, but the angles at which he can finish around the basket, right? How he can go up and under, how he can finish on either side of the basket, how he finishes even off of his, his goofy foot. And he has these goofy finishes that you see around the rim, how he can finish over defenders because he's that vertical. He will dunk over people. He will go through them as a driver. That's where the strength aspect comes in, how he really improved his strength base year over year. 
now he's not just attacking defenders and and falling short on the outcome because he's not strong enough to finish those plays or strong enough to get the type of contact that he wants. He's actually going through people and getting those and ones and converting on them. And that's really important for his success as a driver. And a lot of that does come even more so into play because of the pick and roll aspect that you're talking about, right? We know about his transition game. He is one of those types of athletes where if he gets a step on you in transition, you're not going to be able to slow him down. You're not going to be able to catch up to him. He has those long strides. He's going to finish that play over and over and over again. Same thing you can talk about with his cutting, right? He is so good at recognizing how and, and when to, to, how to read that backdoor cut, when to take it. And so he can finish at the basket with ease to the point where defenders don't even necessarily realize what's going on. He's already at the rim when they're going to try to uh, rotate over, help and contest. So just how opportunistic he is as a player. We know all of those skills are there. We know how the finishing package translate on that end. But in regards to what you're talking about, opening up his pick and roll game, that's the separator between role player and potential star, right? That's really what we're after here. You can be a role player. You can even be a role player who ends up playing, you know, a starter's role or starter's minutes. Even in important games, just ask Christian Brown with, with the Denver Nuggets, someone who just won an NBA championship, when he had those 15 points against the Miami Heat the other night, a lot of that was off of what Koulibaly has done in, in spades, right, over the last two years. So he can come in because he is that level of athlete and play that type of role, but that's not what we're looking for him to be in terms of we're projecting him forward past that to take him with a lottery pick. I think we would want, as scouts, to see a little more. And and again, throughout this piece, I made the argument that just because we didn't see it during the regular season for Met 92 as he was coming up and trying to adjust to another level of competition, that doesn't mean those skills haven't been there and haven't been developing over the last few years to the point where now we're actually seeing it in the postseason for that team. Wow. You mentioned defense and footwork in the first three minutes. And now you, now you mentioned cutting be, be still my heart. <laughs> this is, this is a beautiful moment of podcasting brilliance. No, I love his cutting. And I think that's, you know, again, it's the kind of thing where I think we'll get into this more. Once we get into the Mets 92 section, I do want to touch on his defense in year two and as briefly before we get there. But yeah, I mean, that's the kind of thing where, you know, for the you know for men 92 for the for the big league club essentially right you know he's not going to be the focus of the offense or the defense right i think i might not surprise many people in the draft world when i say you know victor wemanyama is kind of be the captain of both, both the sides of the floor for that team right but his ability to cut just makes it so much easier for him to fit alongside other players and in yeah. other roster constructions and that's where you know i think my concerns about the shooting are mitigated a little bit by the fact that he's not someone who's useless off ball right you know if he doesn't have the ball in his hands it's not like he's sitting in the corner and no one's paying attention to him because they you know don't buy his shot enough to be willing to actually go out there and contest right if he's you know cutting at the level that he has been so far in his pro career then that's just something where you know if the defense leaves him alone for a second you know they don't buy into the threat of the shot enough to challenge him out there he can just cut to the basket and get an easy two points right and you know that sort of negates the completely ignoring him, you know, when he's parked in the corner, which I'm still a bit concerned about, especially early on in his career. Exactly. You, you mentioned the ways in which he can cut. Yeah. You talk about baseline cuts, 45 cuts. The also, when we talk about cutting in a sense, right. In quotations, he's also a really good offensive rebounder for his position as well, right? He's always looking for ways to, to leak in and crash the glass and find an opportunity for two points to be scored in that way as well. So all of these different ways in which he can get, 
a two-point basket versus him just standing in the corner or on the wing. It's one thing if he was a completely stationary player who needed to be set up for a jump shot for him to have value offensively, but because he's one of these guys who's always moving, who is able to always move, make guys miss, right? Catch defenders off balance because of how explosive he is. They might turn their back to him because they feel like they can ignore him over here. If he's in this one spot, they're thinking he's looking for a jump shot. When in reality, they ignore him for a second. He can completely get to another side of the floor and have himself set up for an easy bucket as long as, you know, the point guard or whoever has the ball in their hands at the time is willing and able to find him with a pass. So it's, it's that idea of, if he was more stationary, I'd be more concerned about the jump shot, but the fact that he is always moving around and, and he's always someone who will remain active and therefore will always find opportunities to score in some form or fashion, you just have to be a threat offensively, right? You have to be able to to not only just cut, but you have to be able to, to play a little bit of two-man game, right? The give-and-go game, which is also something that I highlighted in this piece. That's also a skill that he has in his bag that he's really good with. So just finding all of these different little ways to, to be a threat, right? To make defenses react to what you're doing on the floor. He has that very similar to a Christian Brown. That's what's going to help him stand apart and help him play minutes in the NBA when he gets up there. Let's talk about the defense for a moment. And I want to focus on two numbers that you cite here. So first of all, the shooting percentage number opponents went from shooting nearly 32% against him the prior year down to just 24.4%. That's directly from the article. And the other thing I wanted to hit on is, you know, I think the main, the main thing for me, which is his steal and block rates. I think the only thing that I've talked about on this podcast anywhere near as much as deer and Fox's development is how much I believe in steal rates as a number that translates with more fidelity to the NBA than pretty much any other rate statistic. If you get a lot of steals in, you know, Espoir, if you get a lot of steals in division one, if you get a lot of steals in division two, you're going to get a lot of steals when you move up levels. And that's the kind of thing where, especially, you know, given that we wax eloquent about his transition play earlier, that's the kind of thing where his ability to get himself out in transition and yep. make those plays for himself is going to be a huge part of his defense to offense kind of game. And, you know, again, that's the kind of thing where, you know, his ability to be more solid means that, you know, he's not, again, I've, I've talked about this before with Russell Westbrook, sorry to, you know, hate on Russell Westbrook again, but, you know, there's the sort of gambling for steals thing where, okay, you get two and a half steals per game, but you're, also throwing yourself out of position 10 times a game to try and get those steals, right? You know, the ability to get a ton of steals and do so while playing solid fundamental defense, first of all, it's why is why I'm as high on Demoy Hodge as I am. But second of all, that's the kind of thing where, you know, you don't even, I mean, you do have to look at the tape, but like, it's not the kind of thing where you, you can see it on, I mean, you can see it on tape, whether guys are gambling for it or not. Right. But just purely in the numbers, that's the kind of thing that translates, right. It's, you know, consistently across every level across every player. If you get a lot of steals at one level, you're going to get a lot at the next level. And if you're getting those steals, not by gambling, but just by playing straight up defense, ripping guys and making good reads and passing lanes, you're going to be a huge defensive plus for your team. So steal and block rates, they're not everything in terms of indicating a player's future no. success. At the and I wasn't, I wasn't trying to say that but, to be clear. Right. I'm, I, I wasn't coming at you with that either. I'm just making it clear for, for the audience. But what, what they do indicate, sort of what you alluded to, Nick, is they are historical indicators for athletic prowess as well as, well as overall 
defensive awareness. And when you can put marry those two things together, right? When you have a player who is willing to jump those passing lanes, who's willing to go the extra mile to cover that much ground to make that play defensively, who is doing it from a measured approach, which is what Koulibaly is when you go back and you watch the tape. And he's obviously athletic enough to be able to make those plays to actually get to where the ball's going. When you marry all these elements together on top of what he's doing from an individual standpoint in terms of contesting shots and not allowing certain shots to be taken, how he is navigating screens. I mentioned the the off-ball denial, right? His ability to deny his man from even getting the ball or catching a pass. His recovery time's gotten a lot better. His closeout technique has gotten a lot better. When you put all those things together, it, it, it makes those two statistical indicators more meaningful because he's doing it the right way, like you said. He's not just gambling every single possession looking for one specific thing to happen so that he can get out in transition. He's being opportunistic about what's in front of him, and he's doing it when it makes sense for him defensively. And that's that's honestly the biggest thing that I've seen from him in terms of growth. It's just how opportunistic he is on both sides of the ball. And the fact that you can get a player like that to come in who knows his role, who knows what he needs to be doing and doesn't play outside of that role to try and make a more spectacular play on either side of the ball. When you get that kind of role player to bring in who also has promise in these other areas, as I'm sure we'll keep talking about again, that's just a major sell on a prospect, especially when you think about, you know, he's 18 years old and we're talking about him in all of these positive ways from an awareness standpoint, from a, a reading the game standpoint. The, we, we don't just throw these things out about every 18-year-old we evaluate. Matter of fact, Nick, a lot of 18-year-olds that we can talk about on this podcast, they probably aren't doing a lot of these things and we'd probably be a little harder on them about their, especially their off-ball defense, but even their on-ball defense, right? We'd be talking about them in a different light and that's just what impresses me so much about Koulibaly's growth and ultimately what he can be in the NBA. Well, that's a much better way of putting it than I did. So thank you for that. (laughs) Let's move on now to the next section, which you've titled the arrival. And so these are his regular season stats from Mets 92 after he got the call up to the big league squad from Esquad. And this is where I think there's a lot of interesting stuff and a lot also that I'm not as sure about. So we'll get into my sort of devil's advocate thing in a moment, but I don't know. I mean, I have said time and time again, and this also feels mean, but I'm going to keep saying it anyway. I've talked about what I refer to as the Derek Williams principle of if you have a sample size of like 53 pointers in a college season, you can give an impression of your shooting prowess that is well above what it actually is. Like the one year that Derek Williams shot 40% in college. And then I don't think he cracked 30% more than like a couple times in his NBA career. And that is really, you know, again, I mentioned that I'm not entirely sold on the shot. That is my biggest concern with Kubali is that, you know, he shot 38% during his regular season at Meth 92, but that was on a very small sample size of three pointers, right? It's like 43 pointers. If I'm remembering correctly off the top of my head, something in that range. So there, so with Espoir, yeah, it, it wasn't the, and again, any of these leagues really, he's not taking a, a large amount of three pointers, but he was attempting over four per game with Espoir. But that naturally that number plummeted because of his role and how he's trying to fit in. First of all, the, the amount of minutes he played, right? He was only averaging less than 20 minutes per game across the regular season, only started in 14 games. And and a lot of those 33, especially leading up to like the mid to later part of the regular season, 
he was barely getting minutes at all. So yeah, he was shooting 37.8% from three, but only attempting a little over one per game feeds exactly into what you're talking about. Not even just the total number of threes taken, but really I, I like to look at the attempts and how many he's willing to shoot per game. Yeah, that's that's huge for for me as well. And also, you know, the other mean example that I bring up time and time again is the Rajon Rondo example of, okay, sure, he shot 37% from three that season in Sacramento, but he also took two of them a game and every single one of them was wide open because no one was bothering to, you know, get anywhere near him, right? It's the kind of thing where, you know, the four, the four attempts per game and the 32% that he shot this season at Espoir, that seems a lot more like sort of the true value of true range of where he is as a shooter rather than the 38% in the regular season for, you know, Mets 92. And the flip side of that though, is, you know, he also shot 77% from the free throw line at Espoir and 60% from the line at Mets 92. And, you know, as I've said time and time again, you know, calling myself a free throw truther or a partial free throw truther, depending on which episode and which person I'm talking to, but you know, I think the true value of the shooting is a lot closer to low 30s from three, mid 70s from the free throw line. And, you know, rather than the like near 40%, near 60% that he actually shot on the season. And especially given how spectacular he is at getting to the rim and finishing at the rim, I'm pretty encouraged by the free throw numbers, you know, not at Mets 92. And that's, I'm almost, you know, more positively swayed by his previous free throw numbers than I am negatively swayed by the fact that I think it's going to be easy for people to buy in a little bit too much to the three-point shot if they just look at that 38% stat line. And this is exactly why I wanted to write this piece and structure it, Nick, the way that I did. Because if we put too much stock into his regular season numbers with Met 92, I get it. I get everyone wants to look at them because that's the level of play in which we can best compare what could this guy be doing if he was over in college in the United States. But if you do look at how he's developed and how he's grown over the course of a full year, let's go back really quick to his numbers in Espoir during the 2021-22 season. He was taking a little over three three-point attempts per game, getting to the line about three times per game. Those numbers, though, he was only about 21% from three-point range and 68% from the line. So think about how much he did improve over the course of one year when he was taking more shots than he was during that Met 92 regular season, when he was getting more opportunities on the ball, more opportunities overall to score because his overall field goal attempts were up. When he had the ball in his hands, he was showing significant levels of growth from one year to the next. Now he's coming up and playing with a team that already has a system in place. They have expectations in place. They essentially designed a team around Victor that did not have Bilal Koulibaly anywhere in the blueprint, right? Like they signed a number of veteran guards to take, you know, higher usage of the ball when it wasn't in Victor's hands. They surrounded him with a bunch of off-ball guys who could participate in roles very similar to Koulibaly's, but who also offered more value in terms of spot-up shooting, right? He was not part of this blueprint. So you want to be able to play him. You want to insert him into the lineup because of what he can do defensively. But offensively, where is he really supposed to fit in? And because he's not really fitting into the design of, of how the team was constructed, how do you expect him to show and showcase those other areas of growth that I talked about before he got up to that level when he doesn't have near as much opportunity, when he's trying to adjust to a new speed of the game first and foremost, but also adjusting to playing with different teammates and trying to fit in 
with what they're doing and what they've been practicing. And that really, that context is behind everything with this piece when just evaluating Bilal's game. And I think that's the biggest thing to take away is that we can't just ignore the production that happened before he played with Met 92 during the, during the regular season, even the postseason. We have to take those things into account, ask ourselves why there is this stark difference in production. And when we properly evaluate the context behind it, I think we can come to a sound conclusion that this is still an ascending player. He was just asked to do different things on the court than his prior role over the last year, year and a half. And, you know, to be to be entirely fair to him, right? I mean, you know, the six points a game doesn't exactly jump off the page and the, you know, three-point numbers we've discussed at length. But, you know, the 62% true shooting, I think, is really a strong indicator for me that, you know, this is the kind of thing where, you know, wherever you're getting cool Bali, unless you're, you know, a team that has decided that you're going to take him, I don't know, fourth overall, and he's the future of your franchise, which I don't think is going to happen, right? So let's just, you know, take from sort of the very basic baseline of, you know, if you get a player like this, you you mentioned the green room invite, so it seems pretty much like a lock, he's going to go top 20, right? If you get someone who produces the way he did at Mets 92 as like an eighth man at the 19th pick, that's pretty good value for the 19th pick, right? And that's just assuming that he stays exactly where he is, right? And that's the kind of thing where, you know, even if I don't buy into the shot, which I'm not all the way there yet, as I've you know already admitted, but even if I don't buy into the shot the way I do, what he can do in transition, what he can do as a cutter, you know, even if he doesn't have as many opportunities as you might like for him to sort of expand his game as a pick and roll operator, even if he doesn't get those looks, he's got a pretty you know decent floor as like a role playing spot up defensive cutting guy. And we saw that this season at Mets 92. So even if some of the higher level stuff, you know, just the basic stat of 37, 38% from three, I'm not particularly buying. There's a lot of other stuff there that it's really hard for me not to buy where, you know, it's getting easier and easier and easier to sort of talk myself into, okay, but, you know, maybe if he doesn't live up to the superstar potential, he's still got, you know, a pretty decent floor given the kind of complementary skills that he has. And oh, by the way, he's still 18 years old. He's still an incredibly young prospect who hasn't gotten all of the opportunities at these other levels to showcase just exactly what he can do, right? He still needs some seasoning. He still needs some developmental time, which is why I've made the the lottery argument for him for a number of months. But to your point that you that you talked about, you can't take him too high, right? There, there is a certain measured approach you have to have to where, yes, we are projecting for the future, but there is still the element of, this is who he is now. There is a chance that those higher level outcomes don't happen, and w- at which point we can't take him fourth or fifth overall in the draft, right? There are a certain number of guys ahead of him, like obviously Victor, his teammate, like Scoot Henderson, like Brandon Miller, and then I would argue, you know, Cam Whitmore, Jarris Walker, Taylor Hendricks, and you can throw the Thompson twins in there, right? That that's at least eight guys who we're pretty sure are not going to be taken behind Bilal Koulibaly, but. When you do have some of the question marks about, you know, how are the Thompson twins going to going to translate, right? Some of these other guys that we can throw in the conversation who are more, you know, fit dependent, role dependent, if they aren't in the right situation, how are they going to continue to develop? When you put him in the conversation with some of these other, you know, mid to late lottery prospects, you know, mid to late first round prospects, 
all of a sudden he starts to move up and up and up because of what you talked about. He has a definite, a sound role, no matter where he goes. And because of how he can fit in nearly any team that would draft him, he can fit in in a role that becomes uniquely valuable in a way that we can talk about for some of the higher tier prospects, right? There's, there's not a team who doesn't want Brandon Miller. That's probably why he's risen up so many draft boards. There's really not a team who doesn't want someone like a Cam Whitmore or a Jairus Walker or a Taylor Hendricks. You start putting him in that level of conversation. That's exactly, exactly how he keeps rising up the board. And then because of these flashes we've seen in the junior division over in France, you can talk yourself into some of these higher level outcomes, how he's already shown, Hey, I can handle this. This is how I can continue to get better at a, B and C if these higher level outcomes happen, what's the player that we're getting? And then that's when you start branching off into the potential star, but you can't let, you can't let the potential completely overtake what you're seeing from him right now. You have to, to try and measure it out and balance it very carefully. So before we move on to the next section, I do want to circle back to the devil's advocate argument that I mentioned earlier. And talking about Koulibaly's defense and you mentioned his aggression on both sides of the ball really starting to pop once he reached Mets 92. I, I genuinely am curious for your opinion on this because this is something that I've struggled with, with evaluating Koulibaly, how much of his defensive, you know, improvement growth tape that he's put together this year at Mets 92 how much of that do you think is him just improving in terms of his technique, you know, all of those sorts of things? And how much of that is that he can afford to be more aggressive because he has Victor Wembanyama behind him? I I would not, I would not. So I get where you're going with that. I would not let Victor play into his defensive evaluation because of everything that I was seeing from his development still in Espoir, right? What sure. he showed before he got up to Met 92. That player is exactly the type of defender that we're seeing. And honestly, to me, I think I really think he defends like Victor isn't there when you're talking about how he defends in space. If there are certain pick and roll coverages in which you can tell he's trying to funnel his man to Victor, right? When he's in a certain spot in the paint, that will absolutely happen. If if I'm a defender, shoot, I would hope that there's some times where I could funnel somebody <laughs> to Victor to ultimately block the shot. But in other situations outside of some of those pick and roll coverages, to my eyes, you're watching him defend like someone who's not worried about whether Victor's behind him or not. And that's the player that I also got to watch at a spot. So I get where you're going with that point. I would actually disagree with that and say he's he's going to be someone where you can trust his defense production if you go back and watch more of that other film that I tried to include in my piece. That's fair. I mean, certainly the Espoir numbers from this year. I mean, again, I buy in a lot to the steal and block rates, the steal rate in particular. And that's the kind of thing where, you know, okay, I, I get that, you know, I, I would be surprised if, you know, anybody wasn't helped defensively by having Victor behind them. But, you know, it's especially the defensive playmaking stuff. He was doing that at the lower level. And, you know, if the question is how much is he helped out by, you know, having this absolute menace behind him as a, as a shot blocker, I mean, yeah, you. I totally get where you're coming from as well, where it's like, you know, a lot of the stuff he's doing is defending on an island, and that's not exactly changing regardless of who's behind him, right? If so, so I'll, I'll, I'll say this. If he were, if he were playing exclusively to Victor's strengths as a shot blocker, I don't think he'd be putting nearly as much effort into denying his man the ball as often as he is, scrambling 
as hard as he is on defense to make sure that he gets to where the ball's going next and he has a proper body in front of that man versus trying to play that that matador style of defense or I'm going to come up from behind you and try and make a play on the ball and, and help Victor in that sense. I think we'd see more of those bad habits take shape as to what he was, you know, 18 months ago versus where he is now, if that was the case. And that that would be my pushback there. I think his overall habits have improved to where he wouldn't be taking the steps that he is to try and make sure the ball doesn't get to Victor more often than when you do see him try and funnel in certain pick and roll coverages. So let's move on now to the statement, which is what Koulibaly has done in the playoffs for Mets 92. And I included Koulibaly in one of my recent editor's nose piece. That was before his most recent run of playoff games where he's been absolutely spectacular. You know, I had a little bit of playoff film to dig into, but not all that much. And yeah, I mean, this is, you know, I think you say it up top with the statement, right? This is the deal where, you know, he's not just proving that, okay, he can, you know, join the big league club for, you know, some time down the stretch and be a valuable role player, you know, help out, help out in bits and pieces, right? This is him actually taking on much more of a starring role. And, you know, this is the flip side of my three-point shooting sample size argument that I was making earlier. I think his limited sample of three-pointers and free-throw attempts has made his splits look worse than I think he is as a shooter, right? You have to look at that. You have to look at it from that side too. But I mean, man, especially, you know, what he's done on both ends in these playoffs have been really remarkable. And, you know, Victor has struggled at times throughout these playoffs. I don't think it's unfair to say that. And it's very interesting to sort of see how, you know, yes, obviously they're playing dramatically different roles, right? But it is, it is fascinating to see just how cool Bali has been on, on, on every single game. Watch two of the last three games against Asvel, and you'll see exactly what, what Nick is referring to in terms of how he's up this play in the playoffs, not just on defense. We've talked a lot about his defense, but this, this is the part of the program where we can really let his offense shine because he's looking more and more like the player we saw in Espoir versus what we saw during the regular season for Met 92, which comes completely back to this favorite part of the conversation we've been having, Nick, why I wanted to write the piece talking about context, right? So we're seeing all these really fun flashes for Victor in terms, I mean, not for Victor, for Bilal in terms of half court usage with the ball in his hands, making something happen. He's not just playing off the ball. He's not just cutting baseline. He's not just, you know, diving for, for an offensive rebound and a putback. He is handling the ball at the top of the key. He's coming off of the screen. He's making decisions in terms of his spot up looks. They're not the more traditional. I'm going to step into a jump shot. He is getting all the way to the basket, but he's making something happen when the rest of the offense is breaking down around him. And that includes Victor Weminyama. And you're seeing him have these drives and, and make these plays that, that, that leave you ooing and awing as to what, what this could be if he was in the NBA right now, right? If he's able to take over a game late in the clock and he's able to put these types of points on the board, this is awesome stuff. Why didn't we see it in the regular season? And that's really comes back to, no, I don't think that he's just a flash in the postseason pan. I think this is who, this is a better representation of who he is and who he's been getting to this point. If you go back and you watch that tape of him actually developing as a player over the last 18 months, you will see examples of him doing every single thing that he's doing in the playoffs. I've watched tape that shows him doing it at another level, you know, at a different time period. This is not just he's showing these skills and then they're not going to be replicatable once he comes over to the league at some point. 
this is a player who's been polishing his game and waiting for the right opportunity to be able to showcase those skills. And it comes back to one of my subtitles of the piece when, when growth meets opportunity. And that's really where I wanted to settle in on this piece and make sure that everyone understood this is a player who's he's he's been developing. He's been getting ready for this point. Now he's on the brightest stage that he possibly can be on. He's starting to show these skills. He's earning all of this buzz. This is the type of player he's been in other areas. Watch those other areas and you'll start to understand how special this can be if he's given more developmental time. And it's interesting, you know, you bring up the argument of, oh, well, why didn't he do this in the regular season? And I mean, the obvious answer is he did. He just didn't do it for Meth 92, but he did do it in the regular season and he <laughs> exactly. did do it this year. Exactly. That's 100% right. And, and it's, it's, it's again, because it didn't happen in this one league that we all wanted it to happen. We're going to discount it. We're going to take those lower numbers at face value. We're going to say, this is the player who he is. If this is who he is now, you know, taking further development, you know, away out of the equation. If this is who he is now, why would I invest in someone like this with a top 20 pick, let alone a lottery pick? If this is all who he is, a role player who's getting looks as an eighth, ninth, tenth man, because this is all he can do within the flow of the offense. The defense is great, but if you aren't able to do X, Y, and Z on an NBA floor as an offensive threat, if defenses don't pay attention to you, you're playing four on five, why am I investing a high draft pick in you? And that's why it is important to evaluate the entire scope of film and look at the entire story versus just a section of the story that we want ourselves to believe more because it's what we're more, the most comfortable evaluating. All right. So we're going to take another quick break here. And then after that, we will evaluate your fascinating player comparison for Coolbly and wrap this one up. All right. So let's now get into the player comparison that you chose for Coolbly. And this is fascinating to me you went with victor oladipo and the thing with victor oladipo is i think people you know over the last two three years have forgotten just how spectacular peak victor oladipo was before he went through all the injuries he had this is this was an all nba player and this was a deserving all nba selection and you know what we've seen from him the last really injury plagued years you know struggling getting, you know, sort of awkward ending in Indiana, you know, getting his way to Miami things, you know, not exactly being all that great health wise at any stop along the way for him since that peak with Indiana, you know, this is someone who, again, you know, deserving second team, all NBA player who also had a very similar sort of growth as a shooter. And again, you know, I mentioned that I haven't particularly bought into cool shot at any point, but this is a high-end outcome for him. And if he hits this high-end outcome, then, you know, it's going to look foolish to not have had globally in the lottery. Sure. So so jump shooting, in particularly in his junior season aside, right, before he ultimately went into the NBA draft, taking a look at who Victor Oladipo was as a freshman, I think people want to remember this, this awesome story about, you know, 2013 NBA draft Victor where his game was pretty complete out of the box there there are still some deficiencies that that we can allude to you know throughout our discourse on victor oladipo that that still existed and and yes they did get polished at the nba level but they were still deficiencies going into the nba draft but we want to picture this springy athletic jump shooter pick and roll playmaker multi-positional defender in terms of in the backcourt we want to picture this awesome player out of the box who went number two overall in the 2013 nba draft to the orlando magic but what we forget about is he actually won on his own journey 
to get to that point. His freshman year, it was averaging, you know, not that he was, hang on. I want to get, want to get his quick stats up. Right? Yeah. Sorry about that. My, my apologies. So he was averaging 7.4 7. points per game, 3.7 rebounds, less than an assist. He was shooting 54.7% from the field, but on only five field goal attempts per game. He shot 30.8% from three-point range on less than one three-point attempt per game. He shot 61% from the line on less than three free throw attempts per game. Those stats are not too far off from where Bilal Koulibaly found himself last year during that 21-22 Espoir season. So this was a player who did not have high command of the offense right within that Indiana team. The offense ran through Christian Watford. It ran through guys like Jordan Holes. It ran through someone like Verdell Jones. It was not running exclusively through Oladipo. Oladipo was the fourth leading scorer on his team. He was much more of an off-ball player. He was thriving in transition. He was thriving off cuts. Those were her. Those were his highest volume play types in terms of efficient scoring, not on spot-ups, not out of pick and roll, struggled with a jump shot, showed some promise defensively, but had some bad habits that he needed to clean up. What stood out to you the most about freshman Oladipo was that he was the athlete that he was as a 6'4 guard. He could handle the ball a little bit. We saw what it looked like when he was getting to some spots and when he was confident taking some shots, and you saw the defense. But you weren't talking about a lot of those other fantastic elements to his game. Very similarly to how we're talking about Bilal when he was, what, 17 years old as a comparison compared to where Oladipo ended that freshman year around 19 years old. It's it's that type of story that I really wanted to compare Bilal to because then when you put together the types of elements that Victor added to his game, you know, leading up to that junior year where, you know, the jump shot, I, I outlined a lot of the numbers in my piece about the jump shot. He was freaking ridiculous as a mid-range shooter, right? Not only just improving from three-point range on higher volume, but really was incredibly ridiculous as a mid-range scorer, especially out of pick-and-roll sets, right? We get it. The jump shot was the separator that took a massive leap. But I don't think a lot of the passing took a massive leap from his freshman to junior year. I would actually argue I like Bilal Koulibaly's handle more right now than, than Victor's handle when he was coming out of college. That's an area of his game that he improved the NBA. But I like where Bilal's at in that regard more than Oladipo. I like Bilal more as a defender because he's bigger, he's stronger, he's going to be able to cover more positions than someone like an Oladipo. So if if we got to see someone who just needed, you know, two to three years of development and refinement with that jump shot to get more comfortable taking those certain types of looks out of those play types where we need him to take them. And he took that massive leap. What's going to happen if Koulibaly takes maybe not even as drastic of a leap over the next two years, but a similar leap in terms of all of a sudden he's, he's a 35, 36% three point shooter on decent volume. All of a sudden he's able to hit some open mid range shots when he takes the space out of pick and roll. What if he is this more dependable spot up pick and roll type player? He's able to make a lot of the passing reads that he is now. He's he's able to make some of those improved passing reads that he's shown in the playoffs and he's defending his tail off. And all of a sudden he's this, this secondary type option in the backcourt who could still find himself becoming a primary if he reaches his highest level outcomes. Like the fact that we have an example in front of us, in front of us of someone who undertook drastic developments over two years at a similar age starting point as to where Bilal is. And we can look at their games. We can look at the tapes. They're scoring in a lot of the same ways. They look very similar in terms of their athletic profiles and how they're getting their points. If we have an example of that type of development in front of us, 
then why should we throw a lot of these other higher level outcomes for Bilal off the table? So it's not meant to be, Nick, a, a, a perfect one-to-one comparison, although I do think they're, they're very similar if you go back and watch a lot of Victor's college tape. It's more so we have a path in front of us for Bilal to walk down to reach some of his higher level outcomes. So the similarities between the year one Espoir stats and Victor Oladipo's freshman year stats are, they're frighteningly similar. So I think <laughs> yes, there, there's a lot to it there. I do want to push back a little bit. You know, you mentioned Bilal getting stronger this year. That was a huge area of strength for Victor that I'm not convinced is a strength for Bilal quite yet. And that's the kind okay. of thing where, sure, you know, you expect him to build by the time he's, you know, 2021. You know, hopefully he'll have. Are you, you talking know, about junior year Oladipo? Or are you talking about even fresh? Because freshman year Oladipo, I would actually argue they're in a similar point. But if you want to say junior year Oladipo to where he looks like, you know, he's the freaking Hulk as a guard, that's completely fair. But I'll still got a ways to go in that regard. Yeah. I mean, you know, not. I mean, he was, I think he was still a little, I, I would argue that Victor had a little bit more strength on him even freshman year than Bilal does now. But yeah, I mean, you know, comparing 21-year-old Bilal, it's, I mean, it's it's difficult to say that anyone is going to develop into the kind of frame that Victor Oladipo did because dude was just a freaking bowling ball, still is, but, you know, not, not quite the same kind of destructive bowling ball in a way. I do want to push back a little bit though, just in the sense that, you know, I do get that you mentioned that this is not a one-to-one comp and that's completely fair, but... Man, I mean, this is going to sound stronger than I want it to, so I apologize in advance. But, you know, we talk all the time about, oh, if only this wing could develop a jump shot like Kawhi Leonard did. That's a 99th percentile outcome, right? I think going from where Victor was as a shooter his freshman year to where he was as a shooter by, you know, even by his junior year, but especially by year two, year three in the NBA, that is a massive leap. But that being said, you know, the one thing that you did mention that I want to specifically circle back to is the mid-range game. That might be bigger for Koulibaly than the three-point game in a way because you know it's the kind of thing where if he has the ball in his hands you don't want it to be oh he's gotten 18 feet what does he do now right you don't want it to be like you can bottle him up by forcing him into that you know 18 to 23 foot range and he can't do anything right that I think opens so much more of his higher level outcomes so much more of his you know on ball a lot more of the time outcomes but yeah I mean I get that it's a similar path that Koulibaly could follow to what Oladipo did but going from where he was as a shooter to where he ended up as a shooter, that's like 95th to 99th percentile outcome. Like it, it is, but I'm just saying, if you would, if you watched Victor Oladipo after his freshman year, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think that he got to where he did after two years to, to go second in the NBA draft either. And that's, that's another point, right? You, sure. we can say, we can say that about Koulibaly and we can have our doubts and we can say that this is a very high bar from the reach. You wouldn't have thought that Oladipo was hitting that high bar when you when you watched him after his freshman year. Exactly. I remember watching freshman year Victor Oladipo. That's why I wanted to go back and make this comparison. I remember especially watching even even sophomore year Oladipo when it was Cody Zeller's first freshman season in Indiana. You had that massive Christian Watford shot that made Dick Vitale fall out of his chair. Like you, when you go back and and you watch Victor Oladipo in these earlier parts, trust me, you would not think that he was going to become an all NBA level guard, but because he had that baseline set of skills to where he was going to keep earning time within the Indiana program, right? He was going to keep getting opportunities because of just how explosive he was, how athletic he was. And you saw someone take, take those opportunities by the reins and you saw him ultimately make the improvements that he needed to, because he was willing to put in the work. If I've seen Bilal go this far, from one year to the next, still being just 18 years old, 
I've seen him make these drastic improvements in just one year. Why am I going to rule out that he can continue to make drastic improvements from year to year after another two years? And I think that's more, I'm not, again, I'm not saying it's going to happen. That That's not why I wanted to make comparison. I'm more so just saying, if you go back and watch some of these players who did need some time to develop in college, who weren't finished products coming into the NBA after a freshman year, after being just 18 years old, like Bilal is, you wouldn't have had some of those same thoughts either, which is why I just, I, I would not rule any of these out. And I, I did list off some more medium or even a lower end outcome when I got into the, the projection part of my piece on nosillingsmba.com. We can certainly talk about some of those, but just as a high end outcome, given what I've seen from Bilal's growth to where he is now, I'm not going to rule out any of those higher end outcomes in two years from now. Sure. That's fair. And certainly, I mean, if we're talking higher level outcomes, right? Like he has, he has the kind of tools where, okay, I definitely can, you know, even though I, I, I think uh, people could gather by this point in the podcast that I do not have Bilal quite as high up my board as you have him up yours. So yeah, I think I think we could sort of you know build from there, but ultimately, isn't, isn't that like isn't that the type of high end outcome you think it would be though? Right, like if Bilal is the best version of himself, when you look at who Victor was, he is he's an explosive driver with the ball in his hands. He can make passes out of pick and roll, but he's not ideally someone who's going to rack up 10, 12 assists per game. He's someone who is score first, uses his threat to get to the basket first, the mid range game second, the three point shot is improved, but that's not his primary weapon in his tool bag. And then he's, he's going to defend his tail off, right? He's, he's not the best player on your team, but if he's your second or your third best player, you can get the places. So even when I say high end star level outcomes for Bilal, I don't think there's a superstar outcome for him. I think this is a very reasonable high end outcome. If he were to reach his ceiling, that's how I see this for Bilal. Sure. I uh, Maybe this is just partially that I thought that Victor Oladipo had a potential Hall of Fame track before he had the injuries he had. And so maybe okay. I'm just not quite all the way to like... You're, you're higher on Victor than, than where I think I, I ultimately settled, which is fair. Sure. And I think also part of that too is there's a difference between all-star high-level outcome and second-team all-NBA high-level outcome, right? Second-team all-NBA, you know, you're pretty much always barring, you know, a few very rare exceptions. Second-team all-NBA, you're the star of your team you're the superstar right and i'm not quite sure that i i don't know i mean i think i think cool Bali could have that high-end outcome it's just i don't know part of me i think you're right is just i really believed in what oladipo was on track to become before he sure. went through all those injuries sure that's fair that that's fair and and maybe i'm not giving enough credit to you know the the awards accolades for for victor Maybe I'm more so evaluating what I thought he was going to be, which is if you're even at that peak outcome, if you're stacking up best player, best player in the NBA versus best player in the NBA, and you're expecting that player to go win a championship, I don't think he's the number one on a championship team. I think he's a number two or a number three. And that's that's kind of where I settled on it, not just trying to use the awards ballot as my designation of what ceiling means for an NBA player. Sure. And to be fair, I'm not, uh, to be clear, rather, I'm not saying that that's, you know, what I'm, what I'm saying either. I'm not saying that I think Victor Oladipo could have led a team to a championship. I just think that there's, you know. Your argument is that it's a much higher bar than I think I, that I, that I should be leaning towards more so than where I have the bar set at. Which I think, you know, tracks perfectly with the fact that you're higher on Coolbully than I am. Exactly. So that's, <laughs> we're, we're all, we're all kind of, we're all, we're coming back to the same spot at the end of the day. 
Great. So now that we've argued in circles for 10 minutes, let's get to the final section of the piece and talk about the outlook and production. So you started with someone who you mentioned actually much earlier in the podcast in Christian Brown. And this is the kind of thing where, you know, it's it's making me feel uncomfortable in a way that I'm doing the evaluation part wrong because I was lower on Christian Brown than he ended up where he ended up getting drafted okay. last year. And in year one in the NBA, he was basically exactly the player where I was mentioning earlier, if Bilal Koulibaly is this kind of role player for your team, that's still a pretty valuable get at the 19th, 20th pick, right? So, you know, maybe maybe this is a flaw in my evaluation that I'm not quite believing enough in some of those outcomes, given the sort of high floor that his baseline skill set gives him. Another player that you mentioned is Bruce Brown, and I have adored Bruce Brown since his Nets days. Um you you go back all the way to his Miami days, so clearly clearly you're you know more in on Bruce Brown than I have been. But you know he's someone who I think is a really fascinating comp for Coolbly in the sense that he has a lot of skills that make sense at other positions in a way. Like you know he he did a lot of the sort of weird inverted small four or yeah. five thing that Gary Payton II did a lot for Golden State where. You know, because he's as strong as he is and as solid defensively as he is and as shaky shooting wise, but exceptional as a cutter and finisher as he is, there's a lot that I could see, you know, somewhere between Christian Brown and Bruce Brown is a huge get if that's what you're getting from Colby's sort of baseline, right? Like if that's his 50th percentile outcome, that's an exceptional 50th percentile outcome. Right. So yeah, so I would say Bruce Brown is definitely a, a higher end median outcome, and I would say Christian Brown would be a, a lower end median outcome, with a floor outcome being the last name that I use, which would be Hamadou Diallo, right? Mm -hmm. And what separates those three guys, right? So how you get to that median level outcome is certainly the passing, and it's not just passing out of pick and roll, which you know Bruce Brown, especially in these playoffs. See, Bruce Brown is is one of the most fascinating developmental stories I think we've had in the NBA for a long time. The problem is no one wants to necessarily reflect on just what that development has looked like for him and go back to actually watching who he was in Miami because he did have a lot. I I, I remember scouting Bruce Brown in person at, at Miami. Actually, I went to go see him and and Lonnie Walker. That was that was the same draft. But when you watch Bruce Brown in Miami. He could handle the ball. He could drive to the basket. He could do a lot of these fun things, but he was he was a very erratic decision maker overall in terms of his scoring approach as well as his passing approach, right? Christian Brown, he's not necessarily a the, the most refined playmaker either, although I think, I think it's better than given credit for, but it's not as useful as it could be because he's not the jump shooter as someone like a Bruce Brown has now become, right? So it's not just the jump shooting that can separate these guys, but it's also the passing in the half court, right? The ability to move the ball off of a live dribble. What do those types of decisions look like? If you can make some of those decisions, like I think Koulibaly can certainly become, given what we've already seen him flash in the pick and roll game, I do think he's going to be that sort of half court connector piece as he gets in the NBA, continues to develop, and develops more chemistry with his teammates. If for whatever reason that wouldn't happen and we'd still have some of the same concerns that we do, Nick, then that's where the Hamadou Diallo name comes into play in which he is this really high-level athlete. You know he can go out there, he can defend multiple positions, but he's not giving you, outside of pure finishing at the basket or dunking at home, he's not giving you any sort of other skill that he can hang his hat on offensively, and that includes you know the lack of playmaking. So if, if this is... If, if who Bilal Koulibaly is now 
if that's how he's going to be throughout his entire career. And he doesn't improve from here. The Diallo name makes sense in terms of a floor. If more of the shooting doesn't come around, and in which case he's not able to reach one of those higher end outcomes, then as long as we see more from him from a connectivity perspective, like a Brown, like Christian Brown or a Bruce Brown, then that's where some of those types of outcomes can come into play. And I also, I would not rule out Koulibaly being used in some of those really weird ways like a Bruce Brown if he's willing to do it and if somebody's willing to experiment with it because he is one of these bigger bodies who, as it continues to fill out its frame, who knows? Maybe he is used in a lot of the same unique ways depending on the construct of the team. I wouldn't I wouldn't bet on something like that happening, which is why that's not, a, again, a perfect one-to-one comparison because their roles are just going to be different. But in terms of the types of impact they're leaving on both sides of the ball, I do think that's a a fair higher-end median outcome for someone like Koulibaly to chase. I think that makes a ton of sense, and it'd be very interesting to see how he would fit in that sort of role. I think a lot of what we've seen from the sort of Gary Payton II and Bruce Brown you know, roles over the past couple of years is a lot of, okay, we can have one player on the floor who can't shoot, and you know, if you're the Denver Nuggets, that player is not going to be your center, right? That Yeah. You know, you know your center can shoot, right? So it's the kind of thing where, okay, we can afford to have one non-shooter on the floor as long as they can you know, be a real plus defensively, move the ball when it hits their hands, even if they're Mm -hmm. not going to be shooting from long range and, you know, make plays around others, right? I mean, with Christian Brown, you know, part of that is just if there's space, Nikola Jokic is going to find you in that space, right? But, you know, part of it also is the awareness to be like, all right, he's going to find me if I'm open. I better cut my way open. That's the kind of thing that I'm very confident Coolably can do at the next level. Yeah, he's yeah he's he's been doing it at multiple levels now. We've seen that in Espoir. We've seen it at Met 92. So that's why it, it's very hard for me to watch Brown in the playoffs the other night and not think that, oh, Coolably can actually come in and do some of these same things if he's playing with similar personnel, someone who has, you know, the type of vision that's going to be able to find the cutting man like a Nikola Jokic. Now, exactly like a Jokic, Jokic is a one-on-one, but someone are who... Sure? Are you sure? Are you sure he and Michael Jordan aren't, you know, oh, extremely boy. replicable? Oh boy. Oh boy. Yeah. No one's ever going to replicate Jokic, but a primary playmaker who has the vision to be able to see, you know, a baseline cutter, someone who's taking part in those actions more often than not, Koulibaly can do all of those same things on the floor that, that Brown's been doing for the Denver Nuggets. Yeah. I mean, you know, ultimately this is, I haven't gotten my King's bias moment in yet this podcast, so I'm going to do it right now. Uh, you know, the idea, there are more and more centers in the league who can pass and none of them are Jokic, right? But you know, there are more and more times. I mean, DeMontis Sabonis ran a lot of the Kings offense yep. this year. You know, Bam Adebayo at times has had a lot of the Miami offense run through him. It's not the kind of thing where you have to go to the Denver Nuggets or otherwise this kind of player archetype isn't going to work, right? There are more and more teams that are starting, you know, the Rockets with Alperin Shankun, right? There are more and more teams that are getting more and more comfortable running offense through the post out of great passing big men. And that makes it easier for non-shooters slash questionable shooters as prospects who can do all the other things that Koulibaly can do. It makes it a lot easier for them to fit into lineup constructions. Yeah, and there's also teams that are utilizing guys like a Koulibaly or like a Bruce Brown in the dunker spot as well, right? Be Making sure yeah. that they're in place to be on the receiving end of some of these easy finishing opportunities, whether that's a center passing the ball, whether that's a point guard, whether that's another wing who has a primary lion's share of the offense. They, a lot of coaches in the NBA are getting much more creative at how they're using their players overall and how they're deploying them. Like the amount of guards who set quality screens in the NBA nowadays, like 
I don't remember seeing that in the NBA game like six, seven, eight years ago. Like, I just don't. Like, that's that's another thing. That's another small way in which Curry's helped revolutionize the game because he is such a unique screener as a guard to where we've seen it implemented in a lot more offenses. That's why th- there's all these different ways in which someone like Akulabuli could be used if where he goes is the right fit for him in terms of a creative coach who says, I'm going to actually try and use you in X, Y, and Z. Let's try and figure some of these things out together to make sure that we're not just relying on you to purely turn your weaknesses into strengths. Let's figure out how to properly utilize him. And it's it's just so interesting to bring up all of these different names in conversation because there's so many different ways in which I could see Koulibaly's career going. Sometimes that's a very scary thing to talk about with prospects, right? If they're going somewhere in which you know, I, I hate to bring up the Kings in this respect, but we've I've made this point before, but the Marvin Bagley story, right? How he came in, his career could have gone so many different ways, but there wasn't a, a structured plan for him in place on how to properly develop him. So th- there is that part of fit. There is that part of having a plan that needs to come in place for Coolably, just like with all these other prospects. But because he has all of these interesting skills to get him on the floor in a very sound and sure way, it opens up all of those other doors for development a lot easier than someone who's only on the floor for one reason and, and, and one reason only. And that reason isn't even as sure or as needed of a skill than what Coolable is providing on a night to night basis. I will breeze right past the Marvin Bagley, the third thing, because you know, many, many different reasons, but I think something that you brought up there is really key. And I want to focus in on that. The idea of, you know, just doing one thing out there. I think, you know, something we, something I certainly noticed this year in the playoffs is more and more of those guys who only do one thing are getting phased out of the league. And, you know, I've, I've brought this up repeatedly with Troy Daniels, but, you know, I've also used Ryan Anderson example, which I think is more telling for me personally, because Ryan Anderson didn't even just do one thing on the floor. He was one of the best offensive rebounders in the league. And also this six foot 10, 40% three point shooter. Right. But the league got a little bit more athletic and he was quickly phased out because he couldn't keep up with the guys. Right. It's the kind of thing where if you just have one skill, it's getting harder and harder to find a role, even as that guy. Right. And, you know, you do still see that to some extent. Right. But, you know, the idea of being versatility is starting to become more and more the name of the game now, just getting, you know, players where you can have a roster construction that has five different guys that can all handle the ball. I mean, I remember in summer league last year when we as a crew were getting extremely excited when the Thunder were running out lineups with Chet and J-Dub and Usman Jang is basically just like everybody on the, and it, I think the other two were Giddy and Aaron Wiggins maybe, but the idea being, okay, these are five dudes who can all handle the ball, who can all run the play, who can, you know, all play off each other in that regard. And with Coolbully, you know, maybe the passing isn't quite like primary point guard level, right? But I think he's gotten a lot further along, certainly already, just based on what we've seen already, than he, he has. Honey Diallo ever did. It's not just like recognizing when to to initiate a certain pass. It's also the types of passes that he's able to throw out, Nick. Like they, these are big improvements that he's taken out of a ball screen type role. I get it. He hasn't necessarily been asked to redirect the ball or make other decisions when he's cutting to the basket or when he's involved in one of these other actions outside of pick and roll. But just because we haven't seen it doesn't mean that it can't be there for him. And 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 to your point, I I agree with you 100%. I don't think we have enough time to unpack that point in this podcast. We could make Fair. a whole separate podcast about how just the bar in general is raising to an upteenth degree in the NBA to where 
I mean, we're seeing all these guys go back to college that we thought would be in this NBA draft. If we're seeing them. Well, I mean, know, part of that is the NCAA is not scamming these athletes out of millions of dollars and they actually get NIL deals. But, well, you know. <laughs> well, right. But the, the, there's also this notion that, you know, these players, if, if they're getting in and, and the NBA didn't solve this, by the way, the NBA thought that they would be doing a, a, this great thing by incorporating the, these third two-way contracts that a team can give out, you know, team for team. But those are still non-guaranteed deals, right? These players want guaranteed money. They want to come in and have a structured contract in the second round of the top half of the second round to where they're not just getting a two-way contract. And they believe that if they can go back to college, they're not only getting guaranteed NIL money by going back to school, but they're getting an opportunity to improve their stock to which they can get that first round guaranteed contract. And so there's, there's just so, yeah, there's just so many different ways in which the, the, the bar is being raised and, and we're, we're seeing it play out in this very 2023 NBA draft. But someone like Koulibaly, who does have multiple dimensions to his game, who does have clear pathways to develop into something more than what he is now, we're not talking about him in that same regard. He is someone who's projected to go in the top 20 because, as you talked about, he is one of these guys who isn't just on the court to do one thing. He has a variety of skills that he's bringing to the table at an important positional need. So as you mentioned, this podcast could go on for another three hours if we talk about how the bar is being raised across the NDA. So instead of that, why don't we close one out? Anything else you want to talk about before we wrap this one up? No, I, I, I think that I did a good job in reflecting what my piece was meant to be, which is there, there's so much that goes into evaluating prospects for the NBA draft that we didn't even touch on. But if we're talking about what you can see on the tape and what you can see from, from the statistics, take the entire picture into account. Don't just focus purely on one sample size. And when you have the opportunity to reflect on why did Koulibaly's stock all of a sudden raise to the level that it did, it's this idea of when growth that's happened before this point meets the opportunity that's been put in front of him, this is when we can see excellent results happen in the terms of a draft stock or a player buzzing and, and rising all the way up in the lottery conversations. This is when these things happen. And that's why I think it was important to always remember some of those contexts behind it, not just you know take one set or one sample size at face value. All right. Well, I don't think we can wrap up the podcast about Bilal Kulabali and how growth meets opportunity any better than that. So I will leave it there. He is Nathan Grubel. You can find him on Twitter at Draft Deeper, and you can, of course, find his written work on NoSealingsNBA.com. You can find me on Twitter at NBA Johnson, and you can find my written work on NoSealingsNBA.com as well. I am collaborating on a piece with Paige Otto tomorrow on the Detroit Pistons. And then I'll also be writing a piece on Jalen Huchifino for Thursday. So I've got a busy week ahead. And if you want to check any of that out, again, noceilingsmba.com, all the written work completely free. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review on whatever podcast player you might be using. That's always much appreciated on our end. And if you have any feedback regarding the deep dives portion of the podcast, feel free to reach out to me either on Twitter or via email, nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening. Cool.